so we're combining adult Sunday school classes, and the topic today is uh, just the Scripture's fundamental teachings on the doctrine of marriage. And this uh, is an important topic, so it's worth our consideration together. Uh, but it's also going to serve just uh, just kind of as advertisement for my next unit in Sunday school. It's going to s- serve as a springboard for the next unit that I'll be doing. I'm going to be doing about a, I don't know, about a 10 to 12 week, maybe maybe only more like eight. I haven't decided yet. But I'm doing a Sunday school series on marriage. And uh, so that will be one of the offerings that will be available to you uh, moving forward. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time of Bible study together now. Father in heaven, we thank you for this lovely day you've given us. We thank you for life and for breath and for all things, and that you've been so merciful to us, even in bringing us here safely. And we commit this time to you. Thank you that we can gather together. Lord, thank you that after another week of being out in the world, pursuing the various callings to which you've assigned us and and doing the things you've uh, you've bid us to do, that we, can, that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a family in Christ and uh, re- be refreshed by your word and encourage one another. And we pray that uh, you would allow that to happen, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up now as we open the Bible and as we study the scriptures together and even as we prepare for holy convocation and for corporate worship in the hour to come. We pray that in all these things, our Savior Jesus Christ would be exalted and that you would uh, be continuing to strengthen us for our ongoing race in this present life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, there is a handout. If you don't have it, raise your hand and we can get one to you. Okay. Well, thank you, Tim. Yeah, hold your hand up if you you don't have a handout and you want one. so, the biblical doctrine of marriage. And the thing about uh, doing a study on marriage, especially when we've got a whole uh, variety of people uh, in this class, we've even got young people. Um, I hope there's not maybe an inclination for anybody to think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Um, because the biblical doctrine of marriage is applicable to everyone. And I'm going to kind of try to pitch that in terms of my, um, my upcoming class. Uh, as well, because this is relevant whether you're married or not, whether you've been married and aren't any longer, or whether you are single and don't expect ever to be married, you know, widows, widowers, uh, you know, we have single people who want to be married and hope to be married someday, we've got single people who God has given the gift of singleness and won't be, but it's relevant for all of us, and this is why. Well, there's several reasons, but it's really Marriage is a, is a foundational doctrine of, of really the, the world, God's created order, and also of the church. And it matters. It matters to everybody, no matter what your particular situation relative to marriage is. All right? So uh, that's why the, the first item on the outline is the importance of marriage. One of the, maybe the thing that makes marriage and understanding it from a biblical perspective so important is that marriage is what we call a creation ordinance. Why is that important? It's important because secular anthropologists will tell you that marriage kind of developed culturally as, you know, because they'll be evolutionary in their thinking anyway. So we, we basically evolved over 
however many millions of years from pond scum to single-celled organisms to whatever, and there's all these steps, and then boom, eventually we reach this stage where we're these, these advanced creatures known as uh, homo sapiens. Uh, and so marriage kind of developed along the way. Marriage uh, came to being because it was practical, it was helpful, it benefited society, and it just sort of developed. And we would say, no, that's not the case at all. We would say that marriage was part of the created order from the beginning. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis. And guess which chapter? Chapter 1. And of course, chapter 1 contains the account of what God did on each of the days of creation. And then we get to the sixth day, and on the sixth day... Uh, is when God created all the animals. And then finally, after creating the animals, you notice the distinction between what we would think of as animal life and what God is about to do in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there you have the creation of, of man. And you have man's purpose described in that passage as well. Now if you look ahead to the second chapter of Genesis, not a separate creation account as many of you have perhaps been taught in the past, it's not that there are two different stories. It's, there's one story, but chapter 2 is a recounting of creation with a specific view to man and the significance of the union between man and woman. So in chapter 2, starting in verse 20, it says, The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, and you may have a footnote there, if you're looking at the ESV Bible, you do, footnote, and you look down there, and it says the man, because the Hebrew word Adam is another word for man, and that was the, the name that God gave to uh, this one that was made in his image. He called him Adam, Adam, man. Uh, so again, back in verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's another Hebrew word for man besides Adam. It's the word ish. And the word Isha is woman. So you've got, um, uh, she will be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Uh, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there you've got marriage as the creation, institu- creation ordinance. There are three major things that we still see around us to this day that we call and refer to as creation ordinances. One, the first is marriage. The other is, another is work. And the third is Sabbath. All right, tuck that away for future discussions. But those are the three main creation ordinances that we read about. In other words, they, they, were, they were there in the beginning. They were there before the fall. So in other words, the, uh, marriage and work and Sabbath were not things that were brought about as some kind of compensation or, or result of the fall. They were part of God's original plan. I remember getting into a, a, an argument with, with a guy. We were having breakfast together, and uh, as we were finishing up and getting ready to leave, he said something about, well, I guess we've got to get off to work. And he's a Christian, and he said to me, uh, he made some offhand comment about, uh, yeah, I've got to go to work. It's a consequence of the fall. And I said, no, it's not. Adam had work to do before the fall. And he apparently disagreed and got very angry with me, and we never had breakfast again. But, uh, but anyway, work, what, what did God say to the man and the woman when he made them? He said, have dominion over the earth. In chapter 2, it says God put Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it, to cultivate it. He had work. What The, the result of the fall is the fact that work is arduous. It, it, we, we, we get our bread through the sweat of the of brow. It's hard. It, the, the ground uh, bears thorns and, thorns and thistles for us. And there are equivalents of that. The thorns and thistles in every every area of human endeavor, everything you try, everything you do, there are going to be some parallel to thorns and thistles that the farmers and gardeners have to compete with. Uh, But work is a creation ordinance, not a result of the fall. And um, so, because marriage is a creation ordinance, uh, it is a universal institution. And by that I mean uh, it's applicable it's relevant and it's necessary for all cultures. Doesn't matter your religion, really. Doesn't matter what continent you live on. Everyone, uh, every culture, partakes of marriage. That's why, you know, if I've, I'm not an anthropologist, but that's why anthropologists, when they study different cultures, even very primitive ones, even very remote ones, even ones that have the least contact with modern civilization or Judeo-Christian influences, they all have some expression, some version of marriage. Isn't that interesting? It's like it's in our DNA or something, right? Every, every society on earth has some observable form of marriage. Now, they don't get it all right. Of course, who does? But, uh, they, so they don't necessarily have a thoroughly biblical concept of marriage, but they have some kind of family unit based around a man and a wife. And so that's the first aspect of, of why marriage is important. The second, it's, it's because it's a creation ordinance. Second, and it kind of springboards off of what I just said, it's the building block of civilization. You've got individual persons, and that's, that's the smallest individual unit in society that you can, that you can have, Right? But other than that, the smallest social unit is uh, marriage. Look again in Genesis 2 and verse 24. If you're you're still open to that, if someone's still open to Genesis 2 and has that, read 
chapter 2, verse 24 for us, please. Thank you. So what happens is when a man and a woman uh, come together in marriage, they become a new and separate individual unit, family unit. So it's the smallest social unit in society. It's the God-ordained context for human reproduction. Look back at um, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28. After God made man in his own image, made them male and female, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's the context in which society is renewed and the earth is populated. And I don't want to get off into a discussion about overpopulation versus population decline, but uh, you know there are a lot of people wringing their hands and, and screeching about overpopulation and how the earth can't sustain this many people. And yet, you've got uh, developed cultures like many of the nations in Europe, and they've had negative population growth for several generations now. And if they continue to have that negative population growth, they will cease to exist. And it all comes from this humanistic idea. First of all, selfishness. I don't want to have children. They're inconvenient. They're expensive. They're a bother. Or secondly, I don't want to bring children into this earth because there won't be enough food to feed us all. And so people stop having children and their civilizations die. It's happening in Muslim countries too, by the way. Leaders of Muslim countries are begging their people to have children. And as they become more enlightened and as a lot more of their women uh, go to get get education and start working, they don't want to have children either. And uh, these Muslim countries know that they're in decline and they're dying. Marriage is the context in which society is sustained. And, you know, just a a survey of of the scriptures indicates that... uh, a multiplicity of people is a blessing. It's a good thing. Secular science has told us, no, 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 no. We need to control population. We need fewer people. There are too many people on earth. And it's a lie. Okay, so um, it's the God-ordained context for reproduction. It's also the God-ordained context for the nurture of children. Socialism would tell us otherwise. You know, the state wants responsibility for your children. They want to indoctrinate them. They want to raise them up and mold them in their image. But God gives that assignment to mothers and fathers. Deuteronomy 6. I put on your handout, I referenced on your handout verses 6 and 7. But I'm going to start reading back in verse 4. Now granted, this is specifically to the covenant people. This is not... Uh, it's, it's, it's a special message from a covenant God to his people. But uh, the, the principle that we're going to see is parents are to teach their children. So he says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Proverbs says, Train up a child in the way he should go. That's moms and dads' jobs. 
So it's the God-ordained context for the nurture of children. All right, so it's in, the, in those senses, it's the building block of civilization. If you've got any comments to contribute or questions to ask, please feel free. Otherwise, I'm gonna, I'll try to save some time at the end for discussion as well, but uh, I'm just going to keep rolling unless you've got something to say. Uh, another thing about marriage that makes it so important is that it illustrates God's character and his covenant faithfulness. Numerous times in Scripture, God likens that covenant community that he redeemed and, and established for himself as his, as his bride. You see it in a much more pronounced way in the New Testament, but you see it in the Old Testament as well. And God refers to himself as a kind of husband to his people. And he talks about his faithfulness to them. And he, he rebukes them for their unfaithfulness to him. But you see that, that description, that, that fidelity that ought to be present in marriage is exemplified most beautifully and most perfectly by God in his relationship to his people. So that's another aspect of the importance of marriage and why it's relevant to all of us, married or not, young and old. Um, and then finally, marriage, of course, as you know quite well, illustrates the uh, relationship between Christ and his church. We see that particularly in a couple of passages. First of all, Ephesians 5. So let's turn there together. Ephesians 5. First of all, you got verse uh, 25. the command to husbands and the command is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her he goes on to describe what Christ did for his church and he's saying husbands your love for your wives needs to be like that and then if you jump down to verse 32 he's talking about that relationship goes on to Uh, say in verse 32 this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church so the marriage relationship pictures the relationship between Christ and his church and in verse 33 he throws in just to remind you well the commands are still valid though right Uh, yes oh it's a picture of Christ and his church that means I don't you know the command to love my wife is, is really more of an illustration, right? He says, no, nevertheless, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so the commands are given for our benefit and for, for God's uh, order, but it, it's a picture, it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church and the love that Christ has for his church and the respect that the church has for him. Uh, and then Revelation, of course. Uh, Revelation, first of all, in uh, chapter 19. We'll start in uh, verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
and it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. Who is the lamb? Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. Right. Uh, now turn to chapter 21. Now remember earlier in Revelation, there were these seven angels that had been given seven bowls full of wrath, and they poured out God's wrath on the earth. And now one of those angels that had formerly had one of the bowls and poured it out on the earth, he comes to John, he says, come here, I'm going to show you something. Okay, verse, uh, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And what he goes on to show him is actually a city. So again, you know, Revelation is full of all these really fantastic images and visions and it's full of apocalyptic language. So like John hears uh, this voice behind him in the beginning of the book and it says something about the lion. He turns around and what does he see? He sees a lamb. He hears something about 144,000 people who had been sealed and he turns around to look and what does he see? He sees a multitude that no one can number. So you've got symbolism, and it expresses things uh, that are different. Uh, he, he hears lion, he sees lamb. He hears 140,000, 144,000, he sees uh, an innumerable multitude. And here, John's being, sa- being told, let me show you the bride, and he sees a city. Because that city is, is you and me and all of God's elect. And we are Christ's bride. So those, that's the importance of marriage. Uh, how am I doing for time? Doing okay. All right, any questions before we go on to the nature of marriage? Okay, maybe some questions are still percolating. Uh, number two, the nature of marriage. Uh, I remember commenting when I was going through this chapter in the Sunday school course I just got through with. If you look at... What the Westminster Confession of Faith says about marriage, it's almost as if it was written today. Because the first thing it says right out of the gate is marriage is to be be between one man and one woman. And, uh, of course, Matthew... People are confused about that today, aren't they? Um, But in Matthew 19, Jesus underscores this truth, this, this... doctrine, this theology of marriage. So if you turn to Matthew 19 and look with me beginning in verse 3. It says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? And how that would sting a Pharisee, because the Pharisees were all about scholarship and their knowledge of the Torah and their knowledge of God's Word. They knew the Scriptures, and Jesus says, haven't you read? Must have kind of bitten a little bit. But uh, He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? 
He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You see the difference in wording? They said, Why did Moses command? And he says, Moses allowed. But from the beginning it was not so. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and Jesus, citing uh, the law of Moses, reinforces that. Um, well, that brings up the, uh, the, the, uh, the issue of polygamy. Because there are even cultures today where men have multiple wives. I don't know of any cultures where a woman has multiple husbands. They, maybe there is one somewhere. But uh, in some cultures, even this day, uh, polygamy is practiced. Hillary and the boys and I were going for a trip to Switzerland one time. We were on a train. And um, we'd gotten on the train, and then we were just going from one car to the next, trying to find a place where there are four seats together so we could sit together. And as we went through the, the different cars on this, this long train headed down to Switzerland, we came to the end of this one car, and there was a man sitting there. And right in the vicinity of this man, there were four women dressed in full, what do you call it, hijab? They're totally covered. Burkas. Um, and, uh, you know, we just pressed on. And then as I went past and on into the next car, I thought all four of those were his wives. I don't know, maybe daughters, I, but I doubt it. I think they were all his wives. So it still happens today. And you know what happened in the Bible, right? There's lots of accounts in the Scriptures of people who had multiple wives. So what do we do with that? How do we handle it? Uh, we handle it uh, by saying, first of all, is, it's a fact of history, yes. You can't deny it. But that was not God's plan. We've seen that already. Polygamy was not God's plan. Um, think back to Genesis 2.22. 2, and that's a good way to remember that passage. Genesis chapter 2, 22. Two, man, woman. That's it. <laughs> so that's one way maybe to lock away that Scripture reference. Um, now, what was Adam's assignment? What did God tell him to do? Be what? Be fruitful and multiply. It's Adam's job to populate the world. Now, think logically here. It would be beneficial, wouldn't it, for Adam to have several wives. That could expedite the process, couldn't it? But how many wives did God give Adam? One. And it's not that he didn't have other ribs. It's like, well, I could have several wives. I could feel a few more ribs in there. No, one man, one woman. The first, this is noteworthy, I think. Maybe not make too much of a big deal of it, but the first example that you do find in Scripture of a man taking more than one wife is found in the line of Cain. Because in those early chapters of Genesis, the Bible traces first the line of Cain, he's the wicked one, and then the line of Seth, the son of promise. Seth's line led to Enoch and Methuselah and then to Noah, right? That was the line that God was preserving. Cain's line was the wicked line. He, he killed his brother and he was under a curse. Um, and it was one of Cain's descendants who first took uh, multiple wives, Genesis 4.19. And then this uh, 
we already saw it in the words of Jesus, but the New Testament reasserts the one man, one woman uh, paradigm. So let's look at a couple of passages related to that. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2. But because of, sexual, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. So although it's not, uh, that's not really the point of the passage, but what, what you see is uh, the woman has a husband, the man has a wife, and it's spoken of in those singular terms. Uh, and then, interestingly, if you, if you go to 1 Timothy 3, and then we're also going to look at Titus 1. And the reason is, those are the passages that uh, very uh, explicitly lay out qualifications for office bearers in the church. And uh, would somebody please read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Okay, thank you. So, um, if a man is going to hold office in the Church of Christ, he can't have multiple wives. He has to be the husband of one wife. And you see the same thing in Titus chapter 1. Paul's laying out the same kind of information, but just to a different one of his uh, associates, protégés, Titus. And so he says in Titus 1 verse 6, as he's giving qualifications, well, back up to verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then you've got the hyphen there. It's an editorial choice by the, uh, the translators. But here, here are the uh, qualifications then for these elders you're going to appoint. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. <clears throat> so that was the standard. And it's not just that only office bearers were to have only one wife. That was... Uh, that's the ideal. That's the, the norm, in other words. And the reason it was written that way is because, I think primarily and principally because in these churches that were growing up all over the Mediterranean world, you would have people coming to Christ, men coming to Christ, who maybe already had multiple wives. Well, the answer to the solution isn't, well, I'm a Christian now, I'm supposed to only have one wife, I'm going to have to get rid of all but one. No, he has a responsibility now for those wives to provide for them, to nurture them, to nurture the children that they've borne to him. So he can't just offload wives. He keeps the wives, but he's not qualified for church office. And that's just fact of life for him. Yes. Well, <clears throat> I disagree with that interpretation. Uh, I'll probably get into that in more detail in the, the course itself. I didn't really intend to dive into it, but you're right, absolutely right. Did everybody hear what Debbie said? There are some people who say that on the basis of this passage that says a man has to be husband of one wife, that means that if he's divorced, um, uh, then he's ineligible for church office. And there are churches that hold to that. I have a dear friend from seminary who's pastoring in a church that won't even allow a man who's been divorced to preach in the pulpit. Um, 
But uh, I don't think that's the correct interpretation of that passage, and I'll explain why. Well, a quick answer here is really, if you apply that logic, then technically a widower shouldn't be eligible for church office either if he's remarried, because he's had two wives. But we don't have time to really dig into that too much more. I couldn't hear you. Right. Yeah, um, take a look at the Westminster Confession of Faith in the chapter of, on marriage and divorce because it deals with this very thing and basically the teaching is and the stance of, of the Westminster Divines and the stance of the PCA is that in the case of, um, since we're talking about church officers, let's just say you've got a husband, his wife was unfaithful to him. Uh, she commits adultery. Uh, you, would, you would assume and hope that they would try to reconcile, that, that he would uh, be willing to forgive her, but if for whatever reason that marriage cannot be salvaged and they divorce, then he, with the, which the uh, uh, confession would describe as the, the innocent party, uh, is, is eligible to remarry and I believe also eligible to hold office still despite. But, you know, and I know that not everybody agrees. Not everybody in the Reformed tradition agrees on all of that, but, uh, but that's, that would be the answer. Yeah, in our, in our uh, teaching, and according to the Westminster Confession, um, it, we would describe that. It's, it's an unfortunate term, but we would call it a lawful divorce. You know, if, if the woman is unfaithful to the man, or vice versa, you know, if a man hauls off, and we have people in this church that have experienced that, woman whose husband was unfaithful to her would refuse to be reconciled. He, he's decided he'd rather be with this other person. So uh, there's no way to reunite them. And so a divorce results. That woman is eligible to be remarried. Um, let's go on just for the sake of time and we'll try to save some more time at the end for questions. But um, uh, so marriage is to be a permanent lifelong relationship. First Corinthians 7, 39. You know, if you try to find a, a passage in Scripture that really just spells that out, um, it's not easy. But First uh, Corinthians 7, verse 39 does kind of spell it out for us. In relation to the wife, of course, the, the same is true of the husband. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay, so it's a permanent relationship. And since you're in 1 Corinthians, just flip over to 2 Corinthians now to chapter 6 and see the final thing that I want to say this morning about the nature of marriage, which is that Christians must not marry outside of the faith. We saw that actually already in the passage we just read, right? It's talking about a woman. She's bound to her husband as long as he lives. Well, say her husband dies. We have widows in this church. Uh, A widow is eligible to be remarried, but a Christian widow must only marry another Christian. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? A Christian must not marry a non-Christian. And if you're a young person and you're kind of romantically involved with or you're attracted to a person who's not a believer, that is a very, very wrong path to go down. Uh, stop while you still can. You don't want to get involved in a marriage. It's, it's sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, to knowingly marry a non-Christian. Now, I realize that sometimes somebody will put on a good show and they'll seem like they're the real deal. They'll seem like they really have faith and then it turns out they're just putting on a show. Uh, don't know that there's a foolproof way to avoid that, but uh, <clears throat> to the best of your knowledge, you want to be sure that the person that, that, uh, that you're thinking about married really does love Jesus and is, is a true believer. And then finally, purposes of marriage. We'll just run through these quickly and then we can use the rest of the time for discussion if, if there's any to be had, if there's any that you'd like to make. But um, first of all, first purpose, uh, at least according to Scripture anyway, and this is the way our confession of faith lines them up too, uh, mutual help of the man and woman. So let's go back again to Deuteronomy. Uh, Genesis, excuse me. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. A, a helper. And that help was to be mutual. The woman was to be a helper to the man. The man was to labor alongside the woman and help her. And then again, back down to verse 21 of that chapter. Uh, you, people will make this point in... Um, uh, in wedding ceremonies, that God took a rib out of the man and formed that into the woman. And it talks about the, uh, the, the, the closeness, the intimacy that that rib would indicate. In other words, he didn't make the woman out of the man's head so that she had lorded over him. She did, he didn't make the woman out of the man's foot so that he could trot upon her and rule over her. He, he made her out of the man's rib so that she, she could be with him, be beside him, be a peer, and so on. Um, it's worth noting then that uh, procreation, the propagation of the race, the species, is not presented as the most important purpose of marriage. Not in the scripture. That's not what comes first. That's not why it says God made Eve. Not, not, not the first thing, not the first reason. And in our confession of faith, the, uh, when it talks about the purposes of marriage. The first thing it lists is the mutual help of the man and the woman. Um, and that's in contrast to our, uh, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, for example, that almost sees marriage as kind of a necessary evil because we need more people, so we have to have marriage so that you know, we can, in a, in a lawful and in a clean way, produce offspring. Uh, no, there's, there are other purposes of marriage. It's not merely to, to have children. The first thing on the list in, in the Bible is that mutual help. And then there's companionship and intimacy. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews 13. I look forward to hearing Pastor Mark preach on this. I know he'll have some really profitable things to say. In these closing exhortations in the book of Hebrews, 
Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In other words, that marriage relationship is, is a beautiful thing to God. It's honorable. It's pleasing in his sight. It's not just something that's permitted. It's something that he blesses and smiles upon. And then in First Timothy, um, First Timothy 4 starts out with Paul warning Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. And I just wanted to stop there because that was the point I wanted to make. You know, there have been, all the way back in the apostolic days, there have been people who felt that sort of this, this higher state was the single state. Um, now, the single state is a beautiful thing if someone's called to it and they're willing to live in, in, a, in contentment in it. Not to, not to knock singleness whatsoever, but uh, the marriage state is not a lower state, and a lot of times people have, have asserted that it is. Well, you know, if you just don't have any self-control, go ahead, you better get married. That's not how God views marriage. And it's, it's uh, how does he describe it here? Teachings of demons that forbid marriage, or that say marriage is somehow unclean, or it's a necessary evil. No. Okay, so it's for mutual help, it's for companionship, and yes, of course, it's for procreation. Genesis 1.28, God said, be fruitful and uh, multiply, fill the earth. He doesn't seem to be putting any breaks on them in that sense, does he? And he says the same thing to Noah and his sons when they come out of the ark. He renews that aspect of the creation mandate to them, the creation ordinance, and he tells Noah and his sons and their wives, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And God is omniscient, right? He knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to destroy the whole human race along with all living creatures on the earth through that flood. And if he was really worried that Noah and his family would have a difficult time repopulating the earth, he could have given Noah multiple wives. He could have given his sons, Noah's sons, multiple wives, but he didn't. He gave each one of them one wife. So I just come back to that. And then uh, purpose of marriage finally would be six verses 6 and 7 already. A couple of other verses that speak to Christians, believers, raising their children in the faith, training them up in godliness, teaching them the scriptures, like it said in Deuteronomy. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Tonight, Lord willing, I'll begin preaching through the book of Malachi, which will be the beginning of the end of my series through the Minor Prophets. And when we get to chapter 2, in verse 15, we're going to see... Uh, did not he make them? Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So God's intent is that we have children, that we teach them the faith, and that's what you have in Ephesians six, 
verse 1 and 4, these counterbalancing commands to fathers and to children. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then verse 4 says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, yes, uh, we are to build Christ's church by going and proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent and to come to Christ and to, and to come into the church. But we also build the church by moms and dads having children and teaching them the faith and raising them up. That's the other major program that God has for building his church, godly offspring. Any questions or comments? Yes, Elizabeth. Having trouble hearing you. That's right, yeah. Uh, Same-sex marriage is radically unbiblical. And as Paul... Well, people within a supposed church, when they want to promote an agenda that's not biblical, obviously they're going to say it's biblical. They're either going to say it's biblical or they will find some way to dismiss and, uh, and, and minimize and suppress the truth of Scripture by saying something like, Oh, well, those commands were for a day when it was really important that people have children. Otherwise, they wouldn't have enough people to work their farms, and they they needed laborers, and so you had to have lots of children just to survive in a culture like that. But now we don't need all that, and so those those prohibitions against homosexuality were because of that. They didn't want people engaged in same-sex relationships because they wouldn't be able to produce offspring. And a hundred other different ways to try to justify a lie. You've probably heard many of them, but no, uh, same-sex marriage is radically unbiblical. doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, love and share the love of Christ with people who are enslaved to that way of life to try to call them to repentance and to turn away from it. It doesn't mean we treat them as subhuman or anything like that. No, we need to love them, but we can't affirm that lifestyle. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Other questions or comments? Okay, well, we'll give you an extra two minutes to drink coffee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the institution of marriage. We thank you that you created it. And we pray, O oh God, that we would have regard for what your word says about it and that we would stand on the truths of Scripture. And we pray that by your grace, you would bring many others, even as, as our culture wars against some of the very foundational truths of your word. Lord, help us to be willing to stand for the truth, to proclaim it. And we pray you'd use the truth to soften the hearts of people and draw them to Christ. And we pray now that you would be making us ready for worship, uh, preparing us to gather, to sing praises to your holy name, and to exalt Christ our Savior. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.